Never before have we had such a blessed opportunity to build the more perfect union of our Founders' dreams. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is the true genius of America. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up live out the true meaning of its creed. We dare not forget today that we are the heirs of that first revolution. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. Free at last! Free at last! Thank God Almighty! We are free at last! America, we have come so far. We have seen so much. But there's so much more to do. When the United States came into being, it was an enigma to the world. After having broken free from the British Empire, how could George Washington not proclaim himself king and start a dynasty? Never before had the great powers seen a head of state serve a couple of terms and then retire. It was unheard of. And to imagine that the position was not passed to his grandson. It was simply beyond comprehension and was known as the Great Experiment. A nation ruled for the people, by the people? Certainly it was a system that could never last. And so Europe sat back with their popcorn to watch it all disintegrate in a few short years. But it didn't. And as, it, and as they watched, it grew into a power that came to dominate them all. And merely by its success, without firing a single shot, it toppled every monarchy in Europe. So where did the United States come from? And how did this nation come to be such a superpower? And where does it fit into Bible prophecy? The United States can only be understood as a reaction to medieval Europe. And when the Bible begins to unpack the story of America, it starts by giving background history of the forces in Europe that came together to form the United States. Simply put, the story of medieval Europe is the story of religion. Religion dominated every aspect of European politics and history, and in Western Europe, there was just one church that dominated the world, in much the same way that the US dominates the world today. It is with the history of the Church of the Dark Ages that the Bible begins to unpack the story of the United States. Let's take a moment to look at what it says. In Revelation 13 and verse 1, we find this passage, I stood on the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his seat, and great authority. 
Clearly, we have described to us here a symbolic creature. I am absolutely confident that none of you have ever seen one of these, either in the wild or in the zoo. And so if we have a symbolic prophecy, we need to look at the various symbols contained within this prophecy to be able to understand it and find out what does the Bible say that these symbols symbolize. We don't have time to look at every aspect of this symbolic creature. And so we will leave the discussion of the composition of this beast along with its seven heads to the discussion that comes after this presentation. However, there are some key aspects we must consider, and these are, first of all, the beast. Second, the water it comes from. Third, its ten horns. Fourth, the crowns. And finally, the source of its power. So let's begin with the beast. What does a beast symbolize in Bible prophecy? Well, at this particular point, we could sit here and scratch our heads and think really hard and say, well, you know, I think it symbolizes this. In that case, we would come up with an opinion. However, if we go over to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 17, we find a concept that we are very familiar with today and that a beast is simply an animal in Bible prophecy is simply a symbol of a nation. You know, we think of Australia, it is symbolized by the kangaroo and the emu. We go to New Zealand and our friends over there, they're symbolized by a kiwi bird. The United States, of course, is symbolized by an eagle. And so we could go around the world. And of course, these are modern symbols for these nations. If we go to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 17, speaking about four great animals in this prophecy back here, the Bible says these great beasts, which are four, are four kingdoms which will arise out of the earth. And so we find that in Bible prophecy, much like today, nations are symbolized by animals. An animal or a beast in Bible prophecy is a symbol of a nation. This one is going to be the dominant nation during the Dark Ages. Now, the second thing that we notice about this beast is that it rises out of the water. Once again, we ask the question, what does the water symbolize? And we're going to look for a Bible definition because when you know what the Bible says, you know that you are not speculating, you're not simply making things up, you are allowing the Bible to interpret itself. So let's find a Bible definition for what water is when it is used in symbolic prophecy, in symbolic language. Revelation chapter 17, this time we will go to, and right here in verse 15, the Bible said, uh, He said to me, the waters which you saw where the horse sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And so very simply, what you have depicted in Revelation 13 is a nation that is rising to power and it's coming up amongst a heavily populated area of the earth where there are multitudes and people and nations and tongues. Well, a little bit further on, uh, well, going back to this prophecy, we find that this beast has ten horns when it comes to power. And when you go to the beginning of medieval Europe, you'll find that Western Europe was dominated initially by ten separate nations. They were the Anglo-Saxons, the Burgundians, the Alamanni, the Franks, the Visigoths, Ostrogoths, Vandals, Heruli, Lombards, and Suevi. Seven of those nations are the foundational nations of Western Europe. And in this scene, we can see that the crowns rather than being on the beast itself, not on the head of the beast, are on the horns themselves, indicating that the Roman Empire has collapsed 
And sovereignty has moved from the beast to the independent nations. Once again, Daniel 7, shed some light on this. Let's go back there very quickly and note what it says in verse 24, where the Bible says the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kingdoms that shall arise. And initially, medieval Europe started off with ten separate nations. But we're going to dig a little bit further into that. If we go back to uh, Revelation chapter 12, we find that there was a beast that preceded this one that came from the sea that looks like a leopard. Revelation chapter 12 is where we will go to next. And I want you to notice with me the language that is used in verse 4 and 5. The Bible says, she brought forth, sorry, verse 4, his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven, threw them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. So here we have the symbol of a dragon. The one in chapter 13 looks like a leopard. This one looks like a dragon. But this one also, the Bible describes in verse 3, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. You notice here a couple of key differences. Here, it's still got seven heads and ten horns. The the, the nations, the foundational nations of Western Europe are still there. But the sovereignty this time, the crowns are on the beast. This is the empire. And you'll say, no, 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 that's Satan. Yes, we know that. We understand that. But it is Satan who works through earthly powers. And so this is Satan working through an earthly power, the Roman Empire. And we know that for sure. Uh, When we notice verse 4, where the Bible says he stood before the woman to devour her child as soon as it was born, she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's Jesus Christ. You simply ask the question, who was it that tried to destroy Jesus at the time of his birth? And that was the Roman Empire. So here we have, in chapter 13, the rise of a nation coming from a heavily populated region of the world based on 10 independent nations, the crowns on the horns with the source of its power being the Roman Empire. This nation goes on to become a world superpower during the Dark Ages. The Bible stating that power was given unto him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Now, There was only one dominant power stretching over the independent nations of Europe during the Middle Ages, and that was the Church of Rome. We all know that. But I want you to notice is just how specific the prophecy becomes about the Vatican State during that time. First, you will notice the emphasis on worship. In verse 4, the Bible states they worship the beast. And then in verse 8, the Bible says all the world worships the beast during this era. This is not just an ordinary nation. This is a nation that is also a religion. But we must ask, how and when did the Vatican receive such universal power? And once again, in incredible clarity, the Bible has the answer with three specific requirements that were exactly fulfilled. Notice Revelation 13 and verse 2. The end of verse 2, the Bible says the dragon... We mentioned the dragon, Imperial Rome, gave to him his power, his seat, and great authority. So we ask the question, did that actually happen? Well, let's think about the Church of the Middle Ages. We have a name for it today. We call it the 
Roman Catholic Church. Why? Because it has the seat, the capital city of the Roman Empire. But what about these other aspects here? There are three of them. His power, his seat, and his authority. And to understand that, we need to go back in history to a time period when the seat of the Roman Empire was moved from Constantine, from, from Rome to Constantinople, and the emperors of Rome, the political emperors of Rome in the year 538. And we're going to talk more about this in our next presentation. But the emperors of Rome, by the decree of Justinian, gave to, very specifically, gave to the church their power, their seat, and their authority, just as the Bible said. And so we find the Vatican received the power, seat, and authority of the Roman Empire, just as the Bible stated it would. In fact, uh, Stanley and his Christian institution stated, the Pope fills the place filled the place of the vacant emperors of Rome, inheriting their power, prestige, and titles from paganism. Now, what does the Bible say would happen to this small nation with all this power? Well, unfortunately, power corrupts. And if you're familiar with the history of the Dark Ages, you will know that the power was severely abused. The Vatican created a judicial system called the Inquisition. Through the Inquisition and the religious wars that followed, up to 150 million people lost their lives for their faith. There's a reason why John Paul II made an apology for the actions of the church during this period in the year 2000. In fact, the Roman Catholic Cardinal Alfred Bodrillart described it this way. The Catholic Church loudly proclaims that she has a horror of blood. Nevertheless, when confronted by heresy, she has recourse to force, to corporal punishment, to torture. She creates tribunals like those of the Inquisition, encourages a crusade or a religious war. Especially did she act thus in the 16th century with regard to Protestants. She led in Italy, the Low Countries, and above all in Spain, the funeral pyres of the Inquisition. In France and in England, she tortured the heretics, whilst both in France and Germany, she encouraged and aided the religious wars. No one will deny that we have here a great scandal to our contemporaries. Indeed, even among our friends and our brothers, we find those who dare not look this problem in the face. They ask permission from the church to ignore or even deny all those acts and institutions of the past which have made orthodoxy compulsory. Let's go back to what else the Bible has to say here in Revelation chapter 13. Once again, every detail fulfilled the Dark Ages, the medieval era, so specifically described to us. The Bible says it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So how did all this come to an end? And what does it have to do with the rise of the United States? Well, in Revelation 13, 3, the Bible says the Vatican would receive a fatal wound. And in verse 5, it says the wound would come at the end of a 42-month period. So what's that all about? Once again, we must understand that this is a symbolic prophecy. And when we're dealing with symbols, we need to look for those symbols and to define them when we find them. So what does a day? How long is a month? And what does a day symbolize in Bible prophecy? Well, the biblical month is exactly 30 days long. 
And people who followed and some who still do follow the biblical calendar every few years add in an extra month to reset their calendar with the cycle of the earth around the sun. Now, when we look at the biblical calendar of 30 days to a month, and then we go to Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 6, and by the way, this is just one verse. I'm giving you one verse for you know each of these symbols. There are many verses. This is a principle you find right through the Bible. But I'll give you one verse for it, Ezekiel 4 verse 6. This was an acted out prophecy that Ezekiel was acting out. And God said, when you have accomplished them, lie again on your right side. You will bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have appointed you each day for a year. So here's what's interesting. Did you notice that the 42-month prophecy ended in 1798? Now think about it. When did the United States become a nation? Well, if you want the answer to that question, along with all of its implications, you'll need to join us for part two of this presentation, coming at the same time tomorrow. The story of the Dark Ages would not be complete, however, without mentioning the great Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. Sadly, the Protestants copied the model handed to them from the Vatican and formed what is known as magisterial Protestantism or state-sponsored churches. This union of church and state created the same problem that existed in, in the Roman church and persecution broke out against anyone who did not believe the same as the state-run Protestant churches. When America was formed, it was the result of Christians fleeing from state-sponsored church persecution. And that state-sponsored church persecution was Protestant persecution. Finally, we should mention the French Revolution, which was almost contemporary with the American Revolution. The French Revolution was different from the American Revolution in that it placed equality first, while the Americans placed liberty first. I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about the environment that we find ourselves in the world right now and ask ourselves this very simple question. What is it that is happening in our world? Do we have equality as being the primary issue or liberty as being the primary issue? You see, when Americans placed liberty first and equality second, they went on to become world superpower wasn't quite the same with France, though, was it? They descended into a bloody revolution where they kind of butchered themselves and 40,000 people died. And so these were some of the primary factors that influenced the formation of the United States. A nation with no king or emperor. A nation with separation of church and state. And a nation with religious liberty and freedom of conscience enshrined within its constitution. A nation that endeavoured to learn from and correct all the abuses of the Middle Ages. Sadly, America has not stayed the land of the free. Over the last few months and years, we've seen liberties and freedoms that were once the standard for the rest of the world eroded away. And as we move through this series, you'll see just how this is taking place. Now, of course, the best part of this prophecy 
is what the Bible says about those who overcome all earthly powers and find their names written in the Lamb's book of life. And we need to spend some time talking about this particular group. So let's go back to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Of course, as we look at this passage, we need to remember, this is the Bible giving you the background for the rise of the United States. One thing that I love about Scripture is that when God gives us history, He's like any good historian. He loves to go back and say, okay, this is all of the background. This is all of the events that were taking place. We're going to talk about the rise of the United States, but before we go there, let's look at the forces that came together to form this nation. Why is this nation the way that it is? That's why we have this prophecy of this first beast right here in Revelation chapter 13. In fact, the Bible says more about this first beast than what we've read so far. The Bible says that this first beast would descend into blasphemy. And if you go back to the Dark Ages, you're going to find some very strong statements that we would say would be very, very strongly against Scripture some of which are even continued today. In fact, if we go back over to, um, let's go back to the book of Mark for a moment. And let's consider what Jesus said back here. The Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the sick of the palsy, son, your sins are forgiven you. Catch the next little conversation that happens here, because here you have a first century definition of what blasphemy is. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there reasoning in their hearts saying, why does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive God? Who can forgive sins but God alone? If you're looking for, you know, blasphemy today can refer to many, many different things. But if you are looking for a biblical definition for blasphemy from the first century in which the book of Revelation, Revelation was written, it was simply claiming the power to forgive sins. Did the Church of the Dark Ages descend into that? Well, indeed it did. And that's called auricular confession. If we go over to the Gospel of John, we find something else. If we go over to John chapter 10, and we find this uh, concept comes up again. Jesus states in John chapter 10 and verse 29, My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones to throw at him. Jesus said to them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And if you go back through history, and if you read some of the pronouncements made during the Dark Ages by the Church of Rome, you will find that this was a church that was definitely setting itself up as God. And as it set itself up as God, we see that corruption coming in that caused it to persecute bitterly anybody who disagreed with it. This is a danger that we should all be aware of. We understand the saying so well today that, you know, ultimate power is ultimate, ends with ultimate corruption. Revelation chapter 13. Let's go back here and let's spend some time now. I want to unpack the very best part of this prophecy. Revelation chapter 13, and let's go down to verse 8. In concluding this section, 
where God takes us through, okay, this is the, this is the historical background to the rise of the United States. Comes to the end of this section and he doesn't want to leave it as being just all bad. You know, we could look at it and just, God's just, just, you know, completely down on everything and everybody during this period. No, that's not the case either. God is not in the business of just discouraging us. A lot of very, very faithful people during this time period. The Bible says all that live on the earth shall worship him. This is the first beast. This is the church of the, of the dark ages. Whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It would be easy as historians to look back at this period and to see so much corruption within Christianity and say they were, they were just all lost. You know, these, these people didn't have, they had no relationship with God whatsoever at all. And yet the Bible says that right through that time period, there were those who had their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Revelation 12 mentions it. In Revelation 12 and verse 5 and 6, the woman brought, the woman brought forth a man-child, that's Jesus, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman, and you'll remember that a woman in Bible prophecy symbolizes a church, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place preserved of God, that they should feed her there for 1,260 days. 42 months, of course, 1,260 days. That's the same time period. Time period began in 538, ended in 1798. That's going to be unpacked in our next presentation. But what we have very simply here is the Bible describing this, that God's faithful people would be preserved right through this time period, that it wouldn't all just be bad news. And so if you dig into your history and you want to look at the medieval period, and if you look at, one of the, look at the, the corruption of power that took place during that time period, and even the apologies that have been made for it in our day, we need to remember, it's not all bad right through that period. There were faithful men and women who followed Jesus with their whole hearts, fully dedicated to him. And the Bible says that their names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, there are many different names for Jesus. So why call it the Lamb's Book of Life? What's that all about? It could have called it Jesus' Book of Life, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Emmanuel's Book of Life, but the Lamb. I want you to catch that. Because whenever the Bible uses one of the many different names or titles for Jesus... The Bible does it with a specific purpose in mind. And when the Bible references the lamb, where does that take our mind? Well, that takes our mind straight to the sacrifice. The lamb was an animal of sacrifice. Jesus was the lamb. How do we get our names then in the book of life? Could there be anything more important for you and I to know the answer to? Revelation chapter 13 uh, follows on into Revelation chapter 14. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 4, the Bible describes those which follow the Lamb wherever He goes, redeemed from among men, first fruits on the earth. Well, what could that mean? Following the Lamb wherever He goes. What do you think about that? When Jesus was the Lamb, 
Where was he going? Well, the answer is very simple. When Jesus was the lamb, he was going to Calvary to be sacrificed. And when the Bible speaks about those who follow the lamb wherever he goes, it's speaking about those who will follow Jesus wherever he goes. Whatever he asks, they just love him so much, they can't hold back. In Romans, Romans chapter 12, the Bible says, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, notice the language, sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. When you understand just how good God is, it's the least we can do to give our lives entirely to Him. We are so glad you have joined us here on the N.Digital, America and the End. And we have really just scratched the surface of everything that the Bible has to say about events that are happening in our world right now. And so because of that, we would like to extend to you a free offer. If you would like personal Bible studies, or if you would like to have a copy of my free Bible study guide series called The Prophetic Code, then simply call or text the number that you see on your screen right now. We look forward so much to hearing from you. Good evening and welcome back to our America in the End live Q&A session. I am here this evening with our presenters for America in the End, Charissa Tarosian, Justin Tarosian, and Lyle Southwell. Uh, We've chosen to, every evening, in this series of presentations to spend some time with our audience, fielding questions, listening to comments, and as a group, as a, as a team, learning together. Um, uh, so glad that you guys could uh, be with us here. Why are you guys laughing? What's so funny? His phone just rang. It's very live. Your phone just rang. It shows how insecure I am. <laughs> My name is Matt Parr. I'm one of the producers of this program. And yeah, we had a great time last night. Uh, just discussing the topic that Justin had presented mm. on uh, the origin of the United States of America. It was absolutely fantastic. I really appreciated that presentation, and I think a lot of people did. And tonight, Lyle, that was heavy, but awesome and really clear. Mm. And so I'd like to thank you so much for, for the presentation. And I praise God. Yeah, and the work that We're you did. We're going to Bible study tonight, so I was really excited to get into a Bible study. Yeah, man, that's you. <laughs> You're the guy. And hey, so um, there were some questions from last night that we weren't able to get to, and I think we'll get to them. You know, why not? And while you guys are thinking and preparing your questions and your thoughts and uh, what you want to say to us, uh, we'll just deal with those questions from, from yesterday that we didn't get to mm-hmm. so that our friends don't feel left out. Um, okay, so we had a question come in from uh, Muhammad. And Muhammad was uh, questioning, just coming in, tuning in from YouTube and said, what are your views on the deep alliance between the United States of America and Israel? It was an interesting one. We had a, uh, a comment on social media and, you know, people were asking the question, where in the Bible do you find the United States? You know, this was one of the, one of the popular questions that was being asked on YouTube. And somebody said, oh, it's obvious. Jer. USA, Lem. <laughs> and, you know, that's kind of, that's uh, it's, it's a little bit humorous. But when you look at what Muhammad has said here about the depth of the alliance between mm. these two countries, you know, it's not altogether ridiculous um, that somebody would uh, would make that observation. 
Now, I do find it fascinating that you have American foreign policy being dictated by mm. theology. Mm. Yeah. yeah, right. Mm. And this is one of the reasons why you have this deep alliance. You're not going to find any uh, presidents of the United States that are going to defy the theology of you know, a large portion of evangelical Christians in the, in America. Uh, I think there's also, I think there's some, okay, let me, let me make a couple of, let me, let me say something controversial. Uh-oh. <laughs> Israel exists because, in fact, let me say it this way, Israel was created by Adolf Hitler. Okay. <laughs> come on, guys. I'm expecting more of a reaction. <laughs> well, we I'm just know that you're okay, trying to shock us. It's just ah, shock us. Come on. <laughs> no, it didn't happen. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, so really what happened was that the pers- persecution of the Jewish people under Adolf Hitler provided a level of sympathy in the world so that when the Jews decided to form their own state, they were able to do, able to form a state in circumstances that would generally not be allowed by the world at large. Okay. You know, yeah. so the formation of the state of Israel took place along exactly the same lines as a lot of people in Australia or the United States might be afraid of. Uh, in, in America, some people are afraid of, you know, Mexicans coming in and creating a Mexican state in America. Here, we might be afraid of, I've met people who are afraid of, you know, Chinese people immigrating until they are the majority of the population, then simply taking over or just buying the whole country out. You know, so these are some of the discussions that take place. And so, you know, when Jews started to immigrate to the state of Israel uh, after the Second World War until they reached about 33% of the population and took over, the rest of the world allowed that to happen because there was a level of compassion and sympathy for what they had gone through during the uh-huh. uh, during the Holocaust. Right. There's a good case to be made for the fact that these people needed their own nation because look what just happened to them. They need to be able to have security and safety and protection, hence the Jewish state. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. That's, 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 the, that's the historical environment in which it took place. Now, you can imagine uh, the, the feelings of the people who already lived in what is now the state of Israel right. when you know, their country just kind of, you know, people moved in, took over and said, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hence we have that tension that exists there today. Mm. One of the things I do find fascinating is, you know, having travelled to Israel is, you know, you cross over the border into the West Bank and suddenly you're, you're surrounded by Christian people. And it's kind of like a breath of fresh air mm. uh, for a Christian travelling through there because suddenly they're, they're talking about Jesus Christ and rather than, you know, Jesus Christ being uh, an opportunity for tourism, Jesus Christ is very real to these people mm. and they're sharing lessons of salvation and so forth. And I think a lot of people actually miss that you know, half of the uh, half of the Palestinians are Christians. Mm. Yeah. I often think of the Palestinians as being um, Islamic or whatever it might be, and Islam cops a lot of you know bad press. But the reality is, half of them are Christians mm. and really love the Lord. Um, and so that was that was you know. I guess I'm just speaking from my own experience of mm. having travelled there. I, I I guess I learned a whole bunch. Cool. Yeah. Yep. Just uh, another a great question, Mohammed. Um, just another thing to tag on is a lot of Christians these days, um, they're especially dispensationalist Christians. And actually, Sharissa and I were just studying a little further into dispensationalism recently. So maybe she'll want to jump in on this as well. Um, a lot of Christians believe that Israel are God's chosen people and that they always have been and they continue to be today in a special way ethnically. 
and that um, all others, and there's Zionism that's connected to dispensationalism that is connected, as was mentioned, to uh, government policy and a lot of what's happening in the United States, hence that, that deep connection between the two. Um, but just to answer the question, if anyone is watching and wondering, you know, does Israel have a specific place ethnic Israel um, that is special in a sense still today uh, that continued on uh, the Bible is really beautifully clear in the New Testament that yes God raised up Israel he set them apart he gave them his oracles to be his people they were at a crossroads between Africa Europe and Asia and he wanted the truth of himself to go to all of the world through them um, however, in the New Testament, uh, the apostles are clear. After the stoning of the apostle Stephen, and actually a little while later, again, uh, they said, now we will go to the Gentiles. Because Jesus said, go to the house of Israel first with the message that he was the Messiah and he had come. Um, but after that point, when now many of the Jews and the Jewish leaders, the Bible says in the book of Acts, accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but the majority rejected, sadly, and therefore um, the gospel was to go to all the world with no one special people to be the beacon of light, so to speak. But all Christians now would be spiritual Israel. Galatians 3.29 says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So now every Christian is a descendant of Abraham spiritually and literal biological connection really means nothing. And even in Jesus' day, he said, hey, God could raise up children of Abraham from these stones here. Uh, John the Baptist said that and Jesus as well. And so, yeah, if we're Christ, then we are Abraham's seed. We are spiritual Israel. And the new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven, as it says in Revelation 20, uh, that's not uh, just for ethnic Jews or any one or two or three ethnic people, but it's for all of God's people from all of history. And so it embraces all of us. That's awesome. Israel. That's awesome. Uh, that's a great answer. I, I'm no, uh, none of us are geopolitical political experts, um, but I would say that whenever you consider world events in history, it's never simple. Mm. And so I've heard people make very strong cases for Israel being a great good in the world because they'll compare the governmental system that's in Israel and the freedoms that the people in Israel enjoy right now in the Middle East to the surrounding nations, and they'll say, okay, come on, so you want to downgrade this, this power, this government, that provides freedom and equality and benefits and blessings to all of its citizens, whether you're Muslim or Jew or Christian or whatever, you have a level of freedom and uh, prosperity that other countries around don't. And then there's the other side of the coin, right, that the, the, the nation itself was, a, was, a, uh, was, just, it was just wrong to establish a nation. You just arbitrarily take people's land, you dispossess those people, and you start a nation. It doesn't matter how great that nation is, it was wrong to form it. And um, I would say that you could probably take 15 experts and argue for about 15 months, and, and the, uh, the, the, the situation would be messy, confusing, back and forth, and history is never simple. Mm. It's never as simple as this is good, this is bad, or that nation's good, or that nation's bad, or these people were good, and these people were bad. Uh, it's just a mess. There's a lot of good, a lot of bad mingled together in a conflagration of events and, and realities. And uh, I think that's just something that I'll add to this conversation. The United States, I loved what you guys said. I think there's a, there's a danger in how the U.S. relates to Israel because, by and large, the United States is supportive of Israel because of a huge wing of voters yes. who believe that that nation is God's people and we, the United States of America, 
has to protect them militarily mm. and force their rights. And that's a, that's a very dangerous thing. Could I add one yeah. more thing? Because something that helps me to crystallize this in my mind, because I was mm. trying to understand why there's so many comments about this. and About the subject. Yeah. And what I realized is that uh, God made many prophecies. Well, there are many prophecies given through the prophets in the Old Testament concerning Israel that were conditional prophecies. Mm. But the Though there is a view that has become very prevalent that these prophecies were unconditional. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they will still be fulfilled. Yeah. But if we understand the timeline right. of history, we can see that that's right. not quite how the Lord intended it to be. Yes. I have a friend. He says that God, when he elected Israel, he elected the world through Israel. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't electing Israel for Israel's sake because they were, you know, racially superior or he just preferred them over other people, the Bible says God is no respecter of persons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even in the Old Testament, you have statements like in Isaiah, what, 56, you can look me up, um, that God wants his house to be a house of prayer for all people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it says, don't say if you're a Gentile or uncircumcised that you're, you're abandoned by God. You're, you're welcome in my house. You're mm-hmm. part, you know, so God wanted to, you know, God's a God of order. And he wants to reach the world. And what's the best way to do that? So he's going to come into the world through a family, through the family of Abraham. Mm-hmm. And a nation is established around the family of Abraham. And he gives them their laws and their statutes. And uh, he can draw the world to them through their prosperity and their blessing. Mm-hmm. And then they can share the gospel that's in their economy and mm-hmm. types and symbols. But God's doing that because he loves the world and he wants to save the world. Not because he's arbitrarily committed to a specific group of people. If I could just reiterate one thing that I mentioned last night, and that is that God is not forced, because God is never forced, Mm -hmm. but God is not forced to bless people who do evil things just because of the DNA that they carry. So God is not up in heaven like, ah, oh, you know, these people are, well, this particular individual here is doing something absolutely evil, but I'm going to have to bless them because they carry, you know, certain DNA. Mm-hmm. No, God is not forced to do that. That's yeah, and he, and you know, it's interesting because, well, this is such a big subject we can talk to. Oh, we could. But we probably just should move on for the sake of the other questions. We're getting other questions coming in, which is awesome, guys. Thank you so much for, for interacting with us and communicating with us. We really, really appreciate that. And that's what this is all about. Uh, cause we don't think we know everything and we want to learn together with you. We want to hear your questions and we want to hear your comments too. And we'll read your comments off to everyone else that's out there. You want to say one last thing on this? Oh, uh, I was. Since you asked, I wasn't going to jump in, but um, when Israel built the temple, when Solomon built the temple that David had longed to build in the Old Testament, we find in Second Chronicles um, chapter 6, verses 32 to 33, they're long verses, so I won't read it all, but basically this is the longest uh, portion or part of his prayer, pretty much. So he says, and he prays, uh, Solomon, that is, as he dedicates this temple, he says, moreover, Concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but who has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm to come here and to pray in this temple. And then he prays and he says, God, answer their prayer here from heaven and which is your dwelling place when a foreigner calls on you. And he says that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. Um, because this temple is built for your name. God's name is synonymous with his character in the Bible. And the significance of the temple was that it was to draw people from all nations who would say, wow, what kind of a God is this? This is amazing. And Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And in John there, where that's quoted, he says, it says there, and the temple that he was speaking of was his body. Jesus is the one who is to demonstrate the name or the glory, the character of God. 
And uh, that was God's desire for Israel as a people, that the people of the world, as uh, yeah. Matt mentioned, the world was elected through Israel to come to know his true character yes. of love and of goodness. Yeah, that's awesome. Fantastic. I, uh, I'm going to, because I get to moderate, I'm going to say one last thing <laughs> on this subject. Um, the, the United States of America is in one sense a Christian nation and in another sense not a Christian nation. Mm. So biblical values and beliefs and understandings they found their way into the Constitution of the United States of America. But in action, in behavior throughout the course of American history, there's been uh, a ton of non-Christian behavior. The nation itself has not acted Christian in so many cases. I watched, uh, I've, I read a book called Shake Hands with the Devil. It was about the genocide in Rwanda in the 1990s. And it was written by a man by the name of Romeo Dallaire. He's a Canadian general, and he was a part of the United Nations forces there in the, na- in, the in the country of Rwanda when the, the genocide broke out. Three months of killing, death squads running around, uh, ethnic Hutus, ki- Hutus killing Tutsis. Uh, it was just horrible, terrible, insane. And you know, Romeo in his book he talks about speaking with the United Nations on the phone and the, Uni- and the United States of America and crying out for help, like, send me troops, send me troops, send me troops. These people are dying in mass, and we can save them. I can save them. You help me. I'll save, I'll save these people. They're dying in mass. And I'm summarizing here what most of the voices coming from the West said. Mm. There's, no, there's no material benefit to us mm. to intervene. There's no political benefit. There's no material benefit. Mm. There's no oil. There's no resources, no geopolitical reasons why we would intervene, and therefore we're not. And so, what does that tell you? It tells you that the nation is a nation, selfish, uh, egotistical, concerned about itself. It's not Christian in the sense that it practices the principles of Jesus and espouses them over the world, all over the world. No, it's in the business of control, power, its own prosperity, just like any other nation that's ever existed. Those Christian elements have not been lived up to, and this is seen in many levels. And so I think this goes to the relationship of Israel and the United States because you know, there may be a feigned theological reason, like, oh yeah, because the Jews are God's people. Eh. No, it's it's a military wing of the United States of America in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, like I said before, history is not simple. So I'm saying this, but you, in, to give a complete answer, you need to write about five or six books and go talk to experts, of which I'm not one. So <laughs> yeah, let's move on for the sake of uh, time. But awesome discussion! Good question. Don't you yeah, think? Very good question. Yes! Good question, Mohammed. Thanks, man. And obviously, we can't answer questions perfectly, but we're just, we're all talking together and hoping God will lead us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, Ryan from uh, YouTube, he said, it's interesting that America was founded with religious freedom, or at least religious freedom was enshrined in its constitution. What are some of the religious liberties that America used to uphold that have since been put aside? Mm. Well, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I mean, in recent times, there's a few changes just because of COVID. For example, um, the right to assemble and worship freely, that's had to be yeah. put on hold because of COVID. Uh, that's just one example. Right. But that's very recent. I'm not sure if that's what... Sure. And many people say that's justifiable, you know, but, it, but, it, but this is what people don't, don't realize. Constitutionally, governors, mayors do not have the power, mm-hmm. legally speaking. A constitution is what a nation is, what constitutes a nation. That's right. Legally. Yeah. No governor, no mayor can say to the people under the U.S. in the United States of America, you can't go worship there. Mm. Um, 
you yeah. have to amend the constitution to do that. And, and this is the this is this is interesting because you know while it can be justifiable, right? It is in the constitution, and uh, you know, being a dangerous situation that it creates is part of the cost of having that in your constitution. We don't have that in our constitution, of course, here in Australia at all. And so it's not an issue in this country. But if you're going to have a constitution that does give the freedom to do that, which is, which is a great thing to do, it's going to come with some costs, and that's one of the costs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think because this really hasn't, um, just two answers to the question. First of all, because this hasn't really needed to be looked at before with a, a pandemic and lockdowns and whatnot, um, even United States courts are, are debating over the constitutionality of locking things down and forcing people to stay out of building. For example, John MacArthur, he's a, a church, uh, a pastor of a mega church in Southern California, the Los Angeles, I think the Pasadena area. And um, he recently won his fourth court battle because he's meeting and his church members are meeting. There are, I think, like over 2,000 of them coming together every Sunday uh, to worship there at his church and he's preaching. Um, and so the, the city of, uh, the county of Los Angeles has threatened him. They've said, look, we're going to fine you this and this much and we'll potentially put you in jail and whatnot. But he said, these are our constitutional rights and the people should have the decision. They should be able to make the decision to come to church if they want to. We deal with matters of eternal significance. Physical health is important, but eternal, uh, matters are more important ultimately. So long story short, in the last, the fourth and final court battle that they've, that they had, um, and by the way, people from the, the city legal department, the head of the police have called him and they've said, hey, look, I, we can't imagine ever shutting you down. You've done a lot of good to help the people in the community. And um, basically in the last court battle, they decided and they said, we've never had to deal with this issue before. We recognize the Constitution protects the right to assemble. So we're going to have to refer it to a higher court. And so watch that space. It'll be interesting to see uh, what happens, no matter where you stand on if they should meet or if they shouldn't. Yeah, very interesting. It's interesting, Please. too, that in history, every time there's a massive crisis like 9-11 or other big events that happen in U.S. history, those rights to gather like in, that are enshrined in the Constitution were readily given up for the safety and the common mm. good of its citizens. That's yeah, right. that's right. And, and I want to point you, Ryan, to the future presentations because... Uh, yeah. Some of you guys have presented on this topic specifically and shown throughout the course of United States history how the country has reneged on that right of, of, of practicing your faith uh, in accordance with your conscience. Um, there have been people imprisoned, um, people physically punished with mm. physical like beating and all these kinds of things throughout the course of American history. So the United States, and this is not because of a pandemic or not because of, um, uh, of any emergency, but rather because... Uh, there were majority views mm-hmm. that were being enforced. Yeah. And when people didn't comply with majority views, well, then they were not given the freedoms that the Constitution provided for. And I think we're getting to real danger in sticky uh, waters, sticky situations in America is, is with a lot of uh, social movements today that are demanding compliance mm-hmm. with their particular values. Um, if any group of people come and demand uh, that you believe and think and talk and speak like they, well, then you're kind of getting into mm. a really dangerous ground. In, in the United States campuses right now, I'm sure you guys have heard about this, mm. but um, most United States public universities have speech codes mm. where you have to, you, certain words yep. and certain speech is outlawed 
on public universities in the United States where tax dollars from every demographic are coming to support uh, the system, uh, that's crazy. If, if you can determine how someone speaks and how they don't, you're basically saying you can legislate what they must believe and what they can express about what they believe. This is anti-American, anti-constitutional, but it's sweeping the nation and most college students support it. Yeah, and yeah. and like Matt mentioned, look for actually even next week there are two presentations on the Constitution, and uh, don't miss those. Especially the second one that Lyle presents, I believe uh, that one um, is especially focused on modern day current um, uh, contradictions to the Constitution. And so watch this. Yeah, watch the presentation. Significant what you said there, Matt, about the majority of people. When the majority of people think a certain way, and the majority. Uh, position is enforced. Mm -hmm. The purpose of a constitution was never to protect the majority. The majority by its very nature is already protected because it is the majority. The reason you have a constitution is to protect the minority. That's right. That's right. In America, we talk a lot today, and even in the country we're in, in that I'm a citizen of as well here in Australia. Absolutely. You're an Aussie. (laughs) Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Uh, Yeah, mate. Uh, So, uh, uh, even in Australia, we, we talk a lot about a diversity, but we seem to be very, which is great. We should, we should celebrate people's differences and we should realize and understand that our differences can be complementary, uh, in the sense that, uh, racial differences, uh, whatever, whatever our differences, cultural differences, um, Whatever. If we love each other and care for each other and are unselfish towards each other, then our differences, our distinction complements rather than contradicts and conflicts. Um, but at the same time, there's not a lot of tolerance for divergence of opinion in some circles, in some universe. Like I just read a, a study about how in the early 1900s in the United States of America, the ratio of politically conservative to politically liberal professors was about one to one. When you get to the 1950s, it's about 10 to 1, liberal professors to conservative professors. When you get to the 1960s, it's like 25 to 1, liberal professors to conservative professors, politically conservative professors. Now it's like 45 to 1 in the public university system. So this is not to say that liberal professors are bad or wrong or they shouldn't be there. It's to say there's an obvious shift. And then you see following that, you know, speech codes and this idea that um, you there's prescribed views on gender and sexuality, on uh, origins of the earth and science. And if you do not conform to these particular views, academia and the cultural life of those campuses feels perfectly comfortable ostracizing you, castigating you, demonizing you. And that's very un-American. That's, that's not a place of diversity and celebrating diversity. That's a place of where you use diversity as a pretext to impose your particular philosophical and social views upon others. Yeah, well said. Uh, that's really dangerous. Yeah. All right. Um, awesome. Okay, question from this evening. Uh, Harry Chanel, uh, Harry Chanel, that's a, that's a first and middle name, has asked us from Facebook, just a question. This is the first beast? Yeah. This is the first, well, yeah. of Revelation okay. 13. <laughs> it's the first beast of Revelation chapter 13. Yes. So it's not the first beast that's mentioned in the Bible. It's not the first beast that's mentioned in Bible prophecy. Yes. And it's not the first beast that is mentioned in this prophecy because this prophecy begins in chapter 12. Mm-hmm. And so you've got the great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. Then you have the leopard-like beast, which also has seven heads and ten horns. Then you have the beast from the land, which has one head and two horns, 
We're going to talk more about that tomorrow night. And so, yes, this is the first one of chapter 13. Oh, chapter 13, that's right, cool. And it's a composite beast. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely. That's, and, it's and he, composed of those previous powers. From Daniel chapter 7. That's right. So it's a, uh, it's, it's a direct link between the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. So if you want more information on Revelation 13, the place to go is Daniel chapter 7. Mm-hmm. So you head over to Daniel chapter 7 and you're going to find, you know, the, uh, the, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the nondescript beast that are all described in Revelation chapter 1, uh, chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. They're all drawn together into one in Revelation chapter 13. Which, which makes perfect sense because, because nations and countries that succeed other ones are going to, on certain levels, uh, carry within themselves characteristics of those previous That's powers. Right. That's right. And so Daniel 7 gives us this, this line of history, all these classical empires, their rise and fall, and then the, their, su- their, their subsequent or their successor is this power in Revelation 13, mm-hmm. um, which is described. In, yeah. which is Fascinating, the one in Revelation 13 is predominantly leopard. Mm-hmm. In Daniel chapter 7, we don't have time to go into uh, Daniel chapter 7, that's a whole Bible study of its own, but in Daniel chapter 7, that leopard symbolizes Greece. Mm-hmm. And so you've got this Hellenistic philosophy, this Hellenistic uh, form of religion that continues on down through to our day, and we see it coming up in all kinds mm-hmm. of places. Mm-hmm. Really, really good. Hey, that's a great answer. how much time I've got, but I tell you the whole <laughs> so, presentation yeah. just, on, just on that thought yeah, right there. Uh, it's it's, it's yeah. kind of like uh, in Revelation, historically... Um, as you mentioned, the beast power that was there, the, 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 the nation of Rome, John was looking back at history. And here was this composite beast because mm. it had elements of Babylon, of uh, Medo-Persia, of Greece, and it was Rome. And so it was a combination. That's why history books you look at will say Greco-Roman world because mm. the Greek and the Roman were so intertwined religion-wise, culture-wise. There was so much carryover. Um, they're looked at as the one. In Daniel, Daniel was looking forward in prophecy and he saw the separate nations of Babylon, the line with wings, um, Medo-Persia, the bear, and, uh, you know, the leopard with four heads, that was the, the Greek uh, empire, and then Rome. And so Daniel was looking forward, and he saw the four separate beasts. John was in the present time looking back and seeing this composite beast of the four kingdoms all combined in one. It's great how those two books go together, mm. Daniel and Revelation. It's awesome. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Fantastic. Good answers, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, Dave Tyler from... Facebook, uh, my mother-in-law, if you're, Mern, I'm sorry, I said another last name. She just rebuked me for doing that. Um, but just want to just let you know, our audience, that when you, when you post a question on Facebook, um, this broadcast is only going back to Facebook and back to YouTube. So if we do say your last name, don't worry, because your last name is on the platform that we're broadcasting on anyways. So everyone sees your last name and your personal details. So don't be afraid of that. Not, not serious personal details, just the name and the... Yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Whatever what name you have, you can never know what you If I say your full name, your, your first and last name... You've already put your first and last name because it's here on Facebook that we're broadcasting on, so no fear there. Okay, so Dave uh, has asked, or has just made a comment, interesting. I thought Constantine appointed the religious leaders to oversee Rome when he moved to Constantinople back in the day. He's talking about Justinian's decree. Mm -hmm. No, 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 sorry. No, he's not. That's Constantine. 
Wrong guy. Sorry. Sorry. I was just having a, a text message coming through right there. Okay. Can you please repeat the question for <laughs> Come me? Come on, man. You're too this old to be This sounds like more... something I'd be really interested in talking about. You're from about. my generation. You're not supposed to be like in your phone all the time. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, Dave says, interesting. I thought Constantine appointed the religious leaders to oversee Rome when he moved to Constantinople back in the day. Yeah, some interesting history there because Rome was taken over by the Ostrogoths. And the Ostrogoths, when they came to power, they were theologically quite different from the Church of Rome. And so the Ostrogoths began controlling who became the Bishop of Rome. And this was one of the, this was one of the catalysts that actually caused Justinian to make his decree. Uh, and, and we're going to get more into it tomorrow night. But you had this, this, you know, this discussion that was taking place throughout the empire as to who was the preeminent bishop. In the world, was it, was it the one that was based in Constantinople or the one that was based in Rome or the one that was in Antioch or the one that was in Carthage? And of course, they were all fighting with each other as to who it should be. Meanwhile, the Ostrogoths move into Rome and they're like, well, we're going to put our own bishops in here. Mm-hmm. And so they were completely controlling who it was who was selected to be bishop. And so, uh, when eventually Justinian, you know, makes his decree, he's like, okay, it's the bishop of Rome, just in case, you know, anybody's got any questions. He's the number one. Mm. And but that could not come into power because the Ostrogoths were in power in Rome, and their bishops were in power. So then he had to send uh, Justinian had to send a general Belisarius, liberated uh, the city of Rome from the Ostrogoths, and for the purpose of taking away the Ostrogoth bishop and replacing or the Ostrogoth created bishop and replacing it with his own bishop, who, as it turned out, was. Um, a pretty corrupt person and had to be removed a year or two later anyway. Um, but yeah, so that, the one, the, the last one that was appointed by the Ostrogoths was sent into ex- exile and, um, yeah, kind of okay. to death. Also, I think that's a good enough answer. We're gonna, we're just kind of go through, we're gonna cruise through now just so that I'm gonna try to get done with all of our questions tonight. This is gonna mean <laughs> that we're gonna be concise. Mm. And if one of us answers the question good enough, the rest of us will resist. <laughs> Is that all right? Fair. Maybe you should. Maybe you, maybe you need to pick someone to answer. Oh, yeah, we right. take it in turn. Okay. So Adrian from Facebook said it's a statement. We may not need to answer it, but uh, he says he makes a good observation by saying the Book of Revelation mentions a composite slash compositional beast arising up out of the sea. Revelation thirteen one through ten. It then reveals another beast rising up out of. The earth. The earth. Revelation 13, 11 and onward. Mm. And uh, yeah, first beast, second beast, first from the sea, second from the earth. Contrast. And then they get together, they function together. The second beast makes an image Mm. or creates a system that's similar to the first beast. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to, in the simplest terms, uh, summarize Revelation 13, first beast, one through ten, second beast begins in eleven. First beast and second beast work together, form a coalition of sorts. An image or a system is created that's similar to the first beast. And what happens in the world on a universal level uh, mirrors what happened. At the end of time, mirrors what happened in Europe. Mm. Is that? Good summary. Good summary. Dark ages in Europe. That's it. Oh, stay tuned for tomorrow. Stay tuned for tomorrow. So so I've just found out there's more to this question if I click on it. (laughs) So my, my people are speaking to me here. Um, is there so I do I double click on it? Uh, okay, what do I do? People, oh, are, yeah. sending, people are sending oh, these questions on my phone. What a champion! This is, this is against champion. the rules. <laughs> okay, no. So he says, rising up out of the earth, 
Who exactly are these symbolic beasts, nations representative of? What's the difference? And why earth and sea? Are they linked or connected mm. or separate but allied military powers? I think you mostly answered yeah, you that. Answered that the, already. Rest, the rest of it, Lyle answers tomorrow night in a 30-minute presentation. That's right. So. Perfect. Perfect. We haven't identified specifically, but yeah, we're, we're good. We will tomorrow. Yeah, we're naming man. names tomorrow. Yeah, and, and I want to <laughs> add to your presentation tonight, Lyle. You did such a good job of talking about that first beast. I thought it was great. Um, some, something I've noticed, is, and everyone's noticed, who studies this text seriously. Jesus, in Matthew 3, to begin his public ministry, he was baptized. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he comes up out of the water yes. to be anointed to his ministry as the Christ. Mm-hmm. He ministers for three and a half years. That's 1,260 days in a Jewish year. Mm-hmm. Um, he receives his authority from the Father from his father. He says, of my own self, I can do nothing. As I hear, I judge. As the father tells me, I do. I get my power, my seat, my authority from my father. Um, And uh, this beast comes up out of the water. It rules for 1,260 days, prophetic days that are mentioned in the text. And it receives its power, its seat, and its authority from the dragon. So it's the image of the dragon, like, you know, has seven heads and ten horns, just like Jesus is the image of the father. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. So there's these, these similarities that all serious Bible students have, have seen between Jesus and this beast power. Mm-hmm. But this beast power is composed of, uh, of, of imagery that represented paganism in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So th- if you want to just distill down what this power is on, in the simplest way, you say this is a form of Christianity that has been paganized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what that is. It's, it's, it's the paganization of the Christian faith that happened through the Middle Ages. So the Christian church started, it was infused with Holy Spirit power from the hands of Jesus, and it was powerful, spiritual, amazing, beautiful, glorious, and then over time became deformed and perverted through inculcating pagan ideals and pagan concepts, and it became this beast power of Revelation 13. Mm-hmm. It's leopard-like. It's Hellenistic. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to... Yeah. We're breaking our own rules. We have no self control. We're hopeless. But go ahead, because you we love to hear what you have to say. And oh, thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> so articulate. No, I just I just had a thought. You know, you mentioned Jesus being baptized, and in the Christian experience, when we want to commit our lives to Jesus publicly, we copy his example and we follow him in baptism. It symbolizes the death to the old man of sin, the New Testament calls it, and a rising to a newness of life in Christ. The sea beast comes up out of the water, just like you might say, like baptism, but um, it hasn't changed. There's no death mm. to the old self. In fact, the Bible says, as Lyle brought out um, in verse 3, it was mortally wounded. It was only wounded. It hasn't actually changed. It hasn't died. It hasn't yeah. died. So. Okay, hey, so you know what? We're never going to make it through. <laughs> There's so many questions. It's such good okay, questions. So, Raphael, Graham... And Brian, you guys have asked amazing questions, and we promise you, if you tune in tomorrow night, we're going to answer those questions. We're going to get to them, um, but we're just going to kind of bring things to a close uh, for now. We do want to let you know, if you want more information, if you're interested in free Bible studies, uh, we're offering a, a set called The Prophetic Code that were authored and uh, developed by our, our own, one, one of our own uh, the sage, the patriarch, Lyle Southwell, sitting at the end of the table. Um, they're, they're fantastic studies, and we'd love to share them with you for free. And also, we've been offering periodically through this Q&A session and through the presentations every night, a book called The Great Controversy, which is an amazing, amazing book that outlines the history of Christianity from, from the time of Christ 
um, to the very end of time. It is such a beautiful summation of all the prophecies of the books of Daniel and Revelation. And uh, it's one of the best books ever written on the subject of Christian history and the end of time. It's just unreal, amazing. So you can text the number that we've been putting up on your screen. I don't know if our guys can get that number up on the screen right now. Um, and just you text, I want a free book. I want Bible study guides. We're happy to, to send those to you. If you want prayer, if you need it, you know, anything on a spiritual level, a pastoral prayer, you're looking for someone to help you in your journey, text that number as well. And we'd love to be here for you. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful evening. We look forward to joining you tomorrow night for night three of America and the end. Uh, take care. Thanks guys. <laughs>